Good morning to you. My name is Tony. If you're new here this morning, we welcome you. And uh, we are actually in the middle of a series, well actually not the middle, towards the beginning of the series where we're studying the life of a man named Daniel. And Daniel's one of the heroes of old in what is considered the Old Testament or the latter parts of the Bible. And uh, so we're actually going to be studying his life, not from the sense of verse by verse, but looking at his context, how he was able to thrive in a place that was not a culture that he could believe in. And the reason why we're doing this series is that it's concerning for many people. Uh, It doesn't matter whether you're a faith-based person or not. A lot of people do not like the direction of the culture of our, comp- our, our country. It, it, it tends to have a lot more of a negative or an argumentative uh, approach. Uh, people tend to disagree more often than they agree. And, uh, and so a lot of this uh, story with Daniel is to help us understand that, you know what, you can choose to be the victim in a culture or you can choose to be an influencer in the midst of that culture. And so that's why we are studying the life of Daniel to see how it is that one man who was coming into a country not his own as a slave and yet influenced not only those around him but also the kings of that country ended up being three kings and ultimately three kingdoms. And so we're going to go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1 and uh, that will be on page 826 in the Bible that is being handed out right now. We're also going to go to Hebrews chapter 12 uh, later in this message, and that's on page 1133 in the Bible is being handed out. And if you do not own a Bible and you want to use this this morning, consider this as a gift from us. We'd love for you to be able to take it home and uh, read more about Daniel's life. So we began the series of getting context into this man named Daniel. Now, Daniel was a royal prince in the uh, country of Judah, which was part of Israel. Uh, So the kingdom of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, uh, northern and southern. And eventually, northern kingdom was conquered and dispersed among the nations. And Judah was the remaining uh, bastion, if you will, of the kingdom of Israel. And so the kings of Judah... Uh, began under the leadership of David when it was a united kingdom, and that his line comes down and through. And so Daniel would have been a direct descendant of King David. But prior to Daniel's life, in fact, about 100 years before Daniel, his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, made a very fateful decision that was basically showing off his kingdom before the Babylonians. And with great arrogance, he showed them everything. This did not please God as as it was indicative of what was going on in the culture at that time in Judah, where they were failing to worship God. And so God sent a messenger to Hezekiah saying that there will be a day when all you've shown in your kingdom will be hauled off and taken to Babylon. In fact, Even some of your offspring, your grandchildren, will become eunuchs serving that foreign king. So that prophecy was known for generations. Now Hezekiah, he actually celebrated the prophecy because it meant that he wasn't going to suffer for his actions. His 
grandchildren were going to suffer. And for him, he was just thankful he could die in peace. Kind of showed a little bit of his heart off. But certainly in this case, you've got to be one of his grandchildren offspring wondering, is this going to be my generation that's going to suffer in the way that King Hezekiah was told? Five generations later, indeed, it was Daniel's lifetime when this situation happened, when all that was in Judah at the time was hauled to Babylon. All the things in the temple, all the things in the palace, including the princes of Judah. And so they were taken, and then it was the select princes of Judah that were chosen to become servants of the king. They chose them because they were intelligent, wise, good-looking, and well-fit. And so they were going to be trained and molded into becoming good Babylonians. But before they could serve in the king, um, among the king's palace, they were castrated and made into be eunuchs so that they could never create a line that would come against the king of Babylon. That's Daniel's context. Here it is. He knows that a prophecy has come against his grandfather that now his generation is suffering for it. He is suffering for it. He has now been castrated. He's been emasculated. He no longer can be a father. He can no longer be an intimate husband. He is now forced to serve this foreign king who is not a worshiper of the God of the universe. Not only that, Daniel was made to become one of the wise men of his culture. In other words, in, in Babylonian culture, they were forced to learn how to do magic and astrology and, and doing things that were offensive to God. And not to stop there, Daniel was also forced to change his name. His name became Belteshazzar, which means Bel's Prince. Not, no, no longer known as the prince of, of Judah, but now known as the prince of Bel, who was the god that was worshipped in Babylon. So in this situation Daniel has come into, he is stuck in a culture where the king is evil and very vile and vain. The culture and the role he's going to play in that culture is to carry that which makes it dark and evil by being an astrologer or an enchanter or a magician. And on top of that, he's reminded that he's no longer in Judah, but rather in Babylon when every time they say his name, Belteshazzar. Now Daniel has a decision to make. Is he going to become a victim in his mindset and heart? Or is he going to resolve to be something different? To truly maintain his identity in Yahweh. That is the name that the Hebrews knew of God. He chose instead to be honoring to God, not the God, this false God of Bel, or the culture that served Bel, but rather to honor the creator of the universe, the one true God. So we find in Daniel chapter 1, that in, in verse 8, where it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with food, the royal food and wine, but asked that he could then go on a mission to do something different. And there he resolved to be different. Now, resolve and being a victim are two different places in mind. And so if we in our culture today are going to look around and just complain about what's not right about it, what we don't like about it, and how we seem to be hindered by it, 
you're likely to become just simply another complainer, a victim of what you don't like around you. Or you can take David, Daniel's example, where he resolved to honor God in spite of whatever was going on around him. And as a result, you, we will see here in a moment that God honored him because God was honored by Daniel. Last week, we then looked at one of the things Daniel had to come to grips with. Again, he's come from a distant land, from Judah into Babylon, and he's being encultured into this evil culture here. And he's having to resolve to somehow serve the God of the universe in spite of this false god, Bel, and his king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel also had to get past the idea that, you know, it seems that everywhere I look, evil wins. Everywhere I look, evil wins. He had to get past that and believe that the God that he knew, the God of the universe, the God he'd been taught since he was a young boy, was truly in control. Too often when we get to looking around us too much to a fault, we look at the culture around us and we see what evil is going on and how it seems to be winning. And in the mind of our, in our soul and in our mind and in our heart, we begin to become disillusioned by evil's success. And we begin to think that perhaps maybe God isn't in control. But Daniel never showed such a disbelief. He actually believed that somehow, in spite of what was going on around him, where there was an evil king with an evil culture in an evil city, having to do an evil role under an evil name, Daniel realized God is still in control. Which then brings us into today. Daniel's story, for those who have read it, will know that Daniel rose in rank in Babylon. In fact, to the highest levels within the culture and the kingdom of Babylon. But it didn't happen overnight. There was growth in him. There was a development of him by God that made him into the leader he became. And that development involved hardship. You see, today we're going to look at the title of the message is Strength Comes Through Testing. Consider your life for a moment. Now, some of you have lived longer than others, so you could probably come off with many stories to what the question I'm going to ask. But consider, what has happened in your life that changed you more than other moments in your life? In other words, that affected your character, that affected your perspective, that affected how you live out every day. Consider the big life moments you've gone through that has affected you to that level. Think for a moment. What has shaped you from life? For those of you that have lived long, if you were really honest with yourself, you would probably say, it's been more the difficult points in life that has shaped me, that has caused me to look differently, to behave differently, to consider things differently. It's been the, the persevering things that, where something was really hard and difficult that I had to push through to become where I am at today. There is no difference from you and me than there is from Daniel. Daniel didn't just become the hero we know him to be just by one act of, of heroism or courage. No, it was developed within him, and we're going to look at that today. 
So beginning in Daniel chapter 1, which we read two weeks ago. Daniel chapter 1, the challenge there is he's now new to a culture. He is also therefore unknown to a culture. So those that are now overseeing Daniel do not know him, do not know his skills, do not know his worship, do not know what he, how his future success. He is simply a prince of Judah that is now going to be trained to become a servant of the king. That's it. He is an unknown. So there is no reputation to pull from. There is no opportunity to say, this is what I used to do in Judah. No, he is here in a new place. First impressions are just beginning. And his first impression is to challenge the food that the king had ordered for him. Now, if you understand anything about that culture, to challenge the orders of a king could cost your life. But Daniel began with a principle. He began with the principle that says, I serve God over any earthly leader. However, Daniel understood that there is still a responsibility to submit. So what he did is he challenged in this situation the diet they were given and said, can we test this? We grew up with a different diet that our God prescribed for us. Can we eat that for 10 days exclusively? And then you can compare our health to those who eat the food from the king's table. And so the deal was done. But this is first impressions. From reading the story, you'll discover that after 10 days, Daniel was seen as more healthy. And so were his cousins or, or relatives or friends that we know as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Or their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were healthier than the Babylonians. And so they won over the opportunity to eat food differently from what the king served because they have proven themselves. So the first impression is that Daniel is wise and Daniel's God prescribes a better food. That's what's learned. The result is that Daniel is now respected among the wise men, the enchanters or the magicians. He now has respect because he's proven something. Even though he was unknown before, he's now proven something that he serves a pretty powerful and wise God. Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 12, you'll discover this dream that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar has. And we talked about this last week. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he needs and desires and desperately wants to understand the meaning of the dream. But he's pretty savvy in understanding that his magicians, his wise people, his enchanters, often will tell him interpretations to dreams that he wants to hear, to tell him what they think he wants to hear in interpretation. So in this case, he knows he wants to speak and to, I mean to hear and receive the true interpretation, not a made-up interpretation. So the king does something very radical. He says, I had this dream. I want you to interpret it, but before you interpret it, I want you to tell me what the dream was. The wise men of Babylon and the enchanters were looking at him as like, this is impossible. In fact, one, the chief of the magicians stands up and says, 
what you have asked is impossible. No king has ever asked such a thing of us before. The God of gods are the only one, is the only one that could provide such an answer. This enraged Nebuchadnezzar, which tells you the risk of challenging the king. And he says, all right, away with all the wise people, away with all the enchanters and the magicians. You're all going away. I'm going to rebuild this group. So they're all going to die, which includes Daniel and his friends. Then we pick up in verse 17 when Daniel returns to his house after telling the king, like, give us time. Let, let's go back and I'll try to tell the king this, this dream and its interpretation. Then Daniel goes to his friends, verse 17, and, and, and says, explains the matter to his friends and he urged them to plead to God for mercy. So they prayed, God, this is an impossibility. We've never seen this before. How can we possibly do this when we have no, no experience in telling what a dream was and then explaining it? I mean, it's one thing to be asked to do something you've done before. But it's another thing to do something you've not only never been asked to do before, but you've never seen before. The only thing that they could draw from to have any sense of inclination on how to do this was to study the life of Joseph from several hundred years before this. But outside of that, they have no experience. So they pray, God have mercy upon us and give us and reveal us this dream and tell us its meaning. And then you'll see at the end, uh, from verse uh, 20 uh, to 23, they are praising God because he revealed the dream. And then Daniel tells the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is shocked because the dream is exactly as he remembered it. But now the interpretation is coming. And so the, he's expecting that if you were able to reveal the dream, then this interpretation is going to be true. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. And here's the result in at, at the end of chapter 2 in verse 45 at the end of it. The great God, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretations is trustworthy. Then Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Then the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries, and you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished many gifts on him, made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and placed him in charge of all its wise men. So in spite of the risk, this challenge, I mean, keep in mind, the death penalty has already been declared. Daniel and his friends are going to die. But he pleads for an opportunity to, for an evening. Give me a night to seek the Lord. Seek our God. So the king gives him a night to do so. And, he, and then God reveals, and, and he reveals the whole dream and its interpretation. So therefore, Daniel's able to share with him. And then King Nebuchadnezzar realizes the God that Daniel sought is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And as a result of this situation... Daniel is promoted. So 
in the first story in chapter 1, Daniel goes from being a no one to someone among those, among the wise people. He's now known. The first impressions were incredible, and he clearly has a source of power that he appeals to that's pretty impressive. But in Daniel chapter 2, it grows. Now it's acknowledged that whoever the God of Daniel is, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And then Daniel goes from being an influencer among the many wise men to being over the wise men and the mayor of Babylon. So to be over the entire city of Babylon. And, and so he grows from just being a no one from another land to being an influencer among the wise men to now he's impressed the king to the point, I'm going to put you in charge of my city and you're over all of the wise men. But again, these challenges are getting more and more intense. Continuing forward, Daniel chapter 4. Turning over another page or two. And then you have a situation where another dream happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But in this dream, Daniel's asked to interpret it. Now, it, you don't see all of the, the same journey to the interpretation. It's clear that when there's a dream involved with Nebuchadnezzar, he goes to one place for its interpretation. It's Daniel. So he goes to Daniel, tells him the dream, and now Daniel's put in a difficult spot because he's supposed to interpret this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and the interpretation is not going to be good. What do you do? You're about to tell the king he's going to go insane for seven years. And not only insane, he's going to behave like an animal for seven years. He's going to eat grass like an animal for seven years. Dew is going to be upon him where his hair grows and his nails grow. And he begins to look like an animal for seven years. Daniel explains to the king that the reason why this is in your future is because you still, even though God has shown you his glory and done many things through you and before you, you still see yourself as superior to God. Daniel's in a difficult spot. The king tells him, tell me the interpretation. I need to know it. And Daniel starts with the interpretation by saying, Nebuchadnezzar, if only... If only this was about your enemies. But this is about you. So he tells them the interpretation. But look at what happens in verse 26. The command to leave the stump and the roots of the trees means that the kingdom will one day be restored to you once you acknowledge that, the he that heaven is the one that rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept this advice from me. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. So Daniel pleads to the king, renounce your sins and your wickedness. Now imagine what kind of a challenge that is, how difficult that would be. You're telling a man, who has gotten angry just because somebody didn't interpret a dream for him and said, kill them all. And now he's telling that man, you're wicked and you're a sinner. Renounce it and turn from it. Then maybe this won't happen. 
verse 29. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what happened. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said this, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? At that very moment, he became insane. And his friends, to avoid the humiliation, sends him out to the fields. And for seven years, he was withdrawn from humanity, behaving like an animal. You see, he did not humble himself as Daniel had suggested. And so Daniel saying the hard truths in this moment at the risk of his own life. And the king rejects him, but lets him live. Let's look at what happens after this. In verse 34, it says this, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what He pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were also returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out once again, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So Daniel chose the safety and protection of God and spoke a hard truth to the most powerful man in his realm. And he lived to talk about it. What's interesting is as a result of speaking in this manner, Nebuchadnezzar, who had seen the glory of God multiple times up to this point, but yet only acknowledged him as the God of gods and the Lord of kings, but never bending his knee and saying, so I worship you as the one true king, and I worship you as the one true God. He never bent the knee. He just knew in his head who God was as being superior through Daniel. And it's at this point that Nebuchadnezzar's story ends. We don't know what happens afterwards other than to say that we know his final words as counted in the text as he acknowledged God as God. All of this is because Daniel was faithful in his role to even do the hard things. So you see the growth of Daniel all the way through. And then you get to Daniel chapter 5 where then it's now Nebuchadnezzar's son. Nebuchadnezzar's son is absolutely more vain than even Nebuchadnezzar. And his reign didn't last very long because, again, his evil imploded upon him. He did things that were offensive to God, even though Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taught him about God. And that's referenced by Daniel. Something happens before that king, a writing, a finger, mysteriously shows up, a large hand, and writes something on the wall. The king wants to know what it means. The enchanters and the wisdom people says, well, you need to go to Daniel. 
Your father found wisdom from Daniel. So Daniel's brought in to talk to uh, this new king, Belshazzar. The king says, if you can interpret what the words that are written on this wall says, I will make you uh, uh, the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Basically offering a bribe. This is a test of Daniel. Because up to this point, he's been with Nebuchadnezzar and he rose through the ranks. But as soon as a new king comes, he brings in his own people. Daniel could be brought back into the inner circle again in this moment. Daniel could be made even higher than Nebuchadnezzar even made him. To be third highest in the kingdom was higher than being mayor of Babylon. But David said, you can keep your gifts for yourself and your rewards give to someone else. But then he tells him about the majesty of God. And then he gives him the, 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 the interpretation of what was written on the wall, which basically says, you've been measured, you've been weighed, and you've been found wanting. In other words, God took stock of your life and you fail the test. At that moment, you'll discover that Belshazzar's kingdom ends and he dies shortly later. Daniel's test, are you willing to do and use the gifts I've given you to promote yourself? Or are you willing to keep trusting in me? You see, he trusted God in first impressions and became an influencer. He trusted God when brought before the king on behalf of all the wisdom people to be able to survive and live another day. And he did so, and then God made him the chief of the magicians and of the wise people, and then the mayor of Babylon. And then he was tested here. Are you willing? Are you willing to keep trusting me and not receive rewards for it? Daniel passed the test. And this king goes away, and a new king comes, which then brings probably the greatest challenge of Daniel's career. The new king comes, and his name is Darius. And Darius is, is uh, manipulated by other people that were threatened by Daniel. They saw how Daniel's influence had grown, even with Darius. He was showing himself to be righteous and, 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 and always doing the right thing. And they became envious and jealous. But the one thing that they knew that Daniel was loyal to, to, loyal to above everything else, and that's praying to his God. So they figured out, what if we can get the king to write an edict for a season of time you can only pray to the king? Then we can entrap Daniel and we can get rid of him. Daniel does not fall trapped to it. He prays to, the, to God and God alone. And they bring him before the king. And, and the king was forced to honor the word that he had given. And he was thrown into the lion's den. And as a result, God protected Daniel. And we'll be talking through this story more in a few weeks. But God protected Daniel. And Daniel came out. And Darius gave him a role that had never been considered before for a foreigner. He was going to be in charge of one-third of the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. One-third. Because they split it into three areas, and he was going to be in charge of one of those areas. So in spite of all that Daniel had been tested with, Daniel continued to worship God first, in spite of how difficult it may have seemed in the moment. So I come back to you and I. 
when hard things happen in our lives, isn't it the first response that you and I have that when something hard or difficult is going on in our lives, that we tend to go to God and say, God, can you remove this from my life? Can you remove this from my life? I, this is too difficult. I don't want to face this. Can you remove this? Have you ever considered that perhaps that difficult moment you're going through is God's way of preparing you for something later? Now, it's true that often the hard things that are happening to you and I are the result of evil, are the result of sin. But God chose not to protect you from that evil or that sin and its consequences so that he could strengthen you and sharpen you and prepare you for that which comes ahead. This is where I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 12 to put into perspective difficult things in our life. You see, Daniel didn't become Daniel just because of the lion's den. He had been prepared for that moment throughout his entire career in Babylon. Every hard thing, he kept passing the test, and God continued to prepare him for what lies next. If you go to this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, it's being written to a church that is suffering greatly, and, and at a time when there was much hardship to be found. And people were beginning to think, where is God in all this? So verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says this, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons or daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So let's begin with this idea. He says, consider the difficult things you're going on in your life as discipline. Now, if we were to stop there, and that's where God would end the sentence, that's not exactly inspiring to say, consider the difficult and hard things you're going on in your life just as discipline. That's all you need to hear from me. We're done. Well, that's not helpful, is it? But often when we think of the word discipline, especially in and of its own, we think of it in terms of punitive responses to something we've done wrong. But discipline doesn't always come from that. And so let's just consider for a moment the objects of discipline. I, I, I mean, how many of you, now you don't have to raise your hands, but would say the spoon means something to you different from other objects in the kitchen, right? The wooden spoon was often used for people growing up. And then the belt was often a use of, again, formation of my livelihood, just being honest. 
And so then there was also the chair, which was one of the primary things that we did. There was occasional times where maybe, uh, you know, a spanking was required as we raised our kids. But we had that chair in our house that if something wasn't going right, you were sitting in that chair. The chair of correction, if you will. But when you consider why you discipline, it's to help form character. It's to help them become productive. Consider the idea, what if your parents never disciplined you? What if they never did that? Now, I can't speak for your life, but I'll speak for mine. If my parents never disciplined me, you would not see me up here right now. I would have been out of control. I would have not been somebody that could be beneficial to anybody else. I would have been totally self-absorbed. But because of discipline, I was shaped, I was formed, and, and, and I was given strength at different points. There was hardship that, yes, came into my life that gave me perspective and, and certainly helped me. Discipline helps form our character and our perspective. You must discipline a child so that they know the way to go. Now, it's also true in verse 8. It says that discipline is not something that we enjoy. How many of you would say that you really enjoyed the correction that your parents gave? It's not something that we would exactly embrace. But look, it, it says that it's not something that we would genuinely say, I loved it, I appreciate it, but yet if our parents didn't do it, do they truly love do they truly love us if they did not discipline us? A parent that doesn't discipline is more about themselves and afraid of rejection than it is about truly loving their child. A parent that doesn't discipline is more about themselves and avoiding a harsh moment between them and their child than it is about truly loving that child. So then you get down to, then God is shaping us for something, right? Right? He is shaping us for something that is going to do something greater. So if God is disciplining us to help us become stronger and to be more better in character, then there is a purpose in that. When I consider my parents having uh, disciplined me throughout, it, you know, there are things that, quite frankly, I didn't care for when I got disciplined. But yet, they saved me from a multitude of errors. My parents were in first service, so you can only imagine me sharing about them disciplining of me. But, and you can put the picture up of, of them right now. So, yeah, I, they were, my mom was immediately looking at like, that picture? Why that picture? You know. <laughs> you see, my parents, I owe a lot to. They had learned a lot from their life. They had made a, some mistakes during their teen years, they learned from it. God disciplined them, but they came to obedience. They, they came under the authority of God by the time I was born. And as a result, I didn't repeat many of their mistakes. I repeated some, but not many of them. Because they had learned from their correction. And therefore, they corrected me. Which then helped me avoid a lot of the mistakes they had made. And as a result, I now pass that on to my kids. You see, God, 
who loves us or a parent who loves us will not spare correction, will not spare discipline, or in this case, under this context, God will not withhold hard moments or difficult moments from you because he knows it will shape you. It will help you. It will sharpen you and it will prepare you for what lies ahead. You know, when I think about this, it says that there will be a day that we'll look back and appreciate all this. You see that in verse 10, we can look and say that, that when God shapes a child or when a parent shapes a child, they're preparing them for good character. In this case, in verse 10, it says holiness. God is preparing and shape you to be holy, set apart, different from culture. Because he doesn't need a bunch of people that look just like culture. We're supposed to be different. And so he's shaping us to be different. That's why Daniel was an influencer. Because he was modeled after God and therefore he was shaped to be different. And then you see in verse 11 that though the process does not feel good, it's going to benefit you. One time in my life, just one time, I tried to act like I liked my discipline. <laughs> I was in the process of being corrected for something I did that was really wrong because my parents didn't often use a belt on me. But this moment, they were. And as a result, I'm thinking, I'm going to make this go better, so I'm going to laugh. Like I told you, I only did this one time. <laughs> and it says in verse 11, you know, though correction or discipline or hard things never seem pleasant at the time, because they don't. And I don't want to kid any of you. If, we're, if you're going through something difficult or hard right now, it does not feel good. And I understand why you would pray to God, remove it from me. But if you have a perspective like God's trying to say here, but while you might pray for that, can you also pray? But God, if this means so you can shape some things in my life, then do so. Because it says at the end of verse 11, and this is so important, it says it will produce, if we go through these difficult things, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hmm. So, in other words... If we go through the difficult things in life and we let God be the center of all that we do as we go through it, he's going to sharpen you and strengthen you and prepare you for what is to come. And as a result, your life will be a benefit to others. An unchallenged, an undisciplined person has no benefit for anybody else. In fact, they're a harm to themselves. Which leads me to say this as takeaways. Keep your eyes on Jesus. In the midst of hard times, keep your eyes on Jesus and endure with hope that which might be before you. In fact, I'm sure that the hard things you're going through, it's difficult to say, I am keeping my eyes on Jesus because it's real easy to get caught up by the storms around us. Secondly, ask for God to build in you strong character and faith through the hardship you're experiencing. It's fine to pray, God, I don't want to go through this. Can you remove it? But if God keeps it there, your next prayer should be, then God, teach me. 
build my character up, strengthen my faith. And then lastly, pray that God will use what he's teaching in you to bless others. That it can be a harvest of good things on behalf of other people. Let's pray. God, I understand that it's not easy to go through difficult things. In fact, I don't, I'm not even recommending to people here so that their character can be stronger to pray, God, send hard things. None of us want to pray that. Hard things will come just as we engage life. But God, when we do, draw us back to Daniel. And realize that being faithful and keeping our eyes upon you, you'll strengthen us, you'll form us, and you'll prepare us for things yet to come. So God, I pray that you'll minister to us in this moment as we consider these words in this song that talks about you building our lives. God, teach us anew the work you're trying to do in us so that you can do work through us. I pray this in Jesus' name.